Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kasesinov. This week, we're going to switch it up a little bit. Um, usually, we interview people who have um, important knowledge in terms of science or alternative therapies and so on and so forth. This week, I really want to focus on a really inspirational story that's very, very dear to my own heart because I'm going to be interviewing Matt Brown, who is one of my dearest and oldest friends. To set the scene for why this interview is so important to me and why I think it's going to be so important and hopefully very inspirational to you. A couple of years ago, in the summer, my best and dearest friend, Sharon, Matt's wife, who was actually my bridesmaid and I was hers, called me up and told me that Matt was in the hospital and was unconscious after suffering a cardiac arrest. The rest of the story, I will leave Matt to explain. And so, first of all, welcome Miracle Matt, which is my, my name for you. Welcome on the show, Matt. Thank you, Tanya. <laughs> so, why don't you tell everybody exactly what happens? Let's start from the very, very beginning. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that, but the one thing you have to realise is that I have no memory of most of this. I am very much reliant on second-hand information from Sharon. Um, but on... Tuesday the 27th of June 2017 I went off to work as normal um, up into London I was running a half day training course on Pentonville Road just up the road from King's Cross it was a totally boring normal day there is nothing to remember at all about it um, Indeed, conversations I've had with colleagues who were there that day have have told me that I was completely normal. Um, my friend Mike told me that I was my normal, grumpy, miserable self, which I felt was a bit harsh. But they say that basically I was exactly as I would be any other day. I left the office at about one o'clock. Um, all I can remember is it was tipping it down. That's the only thing I can remember about that day. Walked down to King's Cross, got on the tube to go to Paddington. And the next thing, or my next memory, is actually Saturday the 29th of July. Well, so I have quite a big gap. But apparently what happened was somewhere between Great Portland Street and Baker Street on the, the tube, I had a cardiac arrest and collapsed. Um, incredibly fortunate that in the carriage uh, there was uh, a member of the public who knew and administered CPR. Um, I have attempted to trace them but have failed miserably. Um, in a way actually I'm quite pleased because to meet them and say thank you is just such an insignificant thing to say when you bear in mind what they actually did for me. I'm not sure what I would say, but it would actually be lovely to meet this person because without them we wouldn't be having this conversation. So they administered CPR until Baker Street. I was then taken off the tube. They carried on um, until the British Transport Police arrived and took over, carrying on the CPR. And then the paramedics arrived and administered the defibrillator. 
Um, how many times I was defibbed, I do not know. Uh, I have been in touch with the transport police and the paramedics, and I'm, we're trying to sort out a meeting with the, the guys or gals who actually administered it, because I would like to meet them and you know, try and find out a little bit more information, because obviously with a cardiac arrest, your heart stops beating. So you're actually dead, to put it simply. So... I would be interested to know um, how long was I dead? <laughs> um, just, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I am hugely disappointed that I have been to Baker Street Tube Station since, and there is no plaque that says Matt died here, <laughs> and another one that says Buck came back here. So maybe I'll, I'll get them made and have them fitted one day. But so, I mean, like I say, but I have absolutely no memory of any of this. Um, if I am even going to be five minutes late, I would phone Sharon and let her know that I would be five minutes late. Uh, my car was in for an MOT that day and did fail miserably. Um, Sharon d did at one point say to me that she worried that that was what gave me the cardiac arrest. But I think, <laughs> to be honest, it was more likely that I would have had a cardiac arrest had it passed because I knew that it was a disaster on four wheels. Um, but I'd said I'd be back at about half one and at half five there was no sign of me. So by that point Sharon knew that something had gone badly wrong but did not know what. They then got a phone call from, or well they phoned, actually phoned Dan, my middle son, um, at about half past six and this voice just asked Dan, who is that? Um, Sharon grabbed the phone and they, it, that was uh, Bart's ringing to basically give them the information. Um, That's St. Bartholomew's yes, Bartholomew. Hospital in London. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Sharon, uh, Dan, she got hold of Rory, my youngest son, got hold of Jamie, my eldest son, also got hold of my brother who, who lives in London and got him dispatched to the hospital. And they got there eventually to find me in um, in an induced coma, covered in leads, apparently. Um, they then, or Sharon then, discovered something that I never knew, but now do get quite passionate about, that there is a radical difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. I had always assumed that they were just the same name, Oh, sorry, different names for the same things, but actually they're radically different. They are. Um, uh, a heart attack, just in case any of the other listeners don't know, very, very quickly, a heart attack is not a pleasant experience in any way, shape or form, but it is basically a plumbing problem where one or more of the arteries or veins into the heart has a blockage which causes it to malfunction slightly um, and you get pain normally in the left arm, left shoulder. It's a very unpleasant thing to go through. Um, in the region of 10% of people who have heart attacks do not survive, so it's nothing to be just dismissed out of hand. Um, a cardiac arrest is an electrical problem where basically the simplest way of putting it is the heart is unplugged and it just stops beating. So you are effectively dead. Um, the only way to save anyone who has a heart attack is by um, administering CPR until you can administer a defibrillator. And um, it's quite interesting. You read a lot of things that say, you know, 
oh, I was worried I would do CPR wrong. Well, you can't do CPR wrong. You know, bad CPR is better than no CPR. Um, so CPR keeps blood going through, sorry, blood and oxygen going through to the brain until you're able to um, do the electric shock stuff to get, get the heart beating again. There is, um, for out-of-hospital out cardiac arrest, a 10% survival rate. So, um, But I look at it, in order for there to be a statistic, there need to be survivors. So, you know, you could say I'm lucky to be part of the 10%, but someone has to be, and I chose to be. Um, <laughs> but also, the other thing to bear in mind is you have less than 8% chance of surviving without brain damage because of the oxygen being cut off from the brain. Um, and I do have a, a minor, what is called hypoxic brain injury. So yeah, that was Tuesday the 27th. On Thursday the 29th of June, uh, I had two more cardiac arrests. On Friday the 30th, I had another cardiac arrest. On Saturday the 1st of July, I had three further cardiac arrests. On Sunday the 2nd of July, I only had one, so that was quite a nice, nice easy day. And at that point, it was decided to... Uh, fit um, an ICD, um, an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, which is a pacemaker and defibrillator. And my one last time it was checked has another 10 and a half years battery life on it. So basically, if anything happens to my heart in the next 10 and a half years, it will be restarted. If um, a psychopath was to come tearing into the house and chop my head off, I will still die. Um, it doesn't <laughs> stop everything, sadly. <laughs> but I'm rather hoping that the latter scenario won't happen. Um, right, so don't, let's, let's just unpack that a little bit for people yes. that don't know. So a, a, a defibrillator actually sends an electrical signal to the heart to actually... Mm. Get, it, get it restarted, it shocks the heart. Yeah. And... Um, um, the uh, pacemaker is a device which actually just engages when the heart starts to beat way too fast or very yeah. irregularly. So there's yes. a little there's a little bundle of of uh, maybe you can explain this better. You know more about it than I do these days. So uh, explain how it works. How how is the heart electrically electrically innovated? Um, well, unfortunately, I don't really know because mine has never activated, which I'm, I'm rather happy Thank about. Thank goodness, yeah. Yes, I, I'm very, very pleased about that. But I have this little box, um, just slightly larger than a matchbox, underneath the skin, just below my left shoulder, which apparently has electrical leads that go into the heart. And, ex and I think as exactly as you said, if my heart starts to to get overexcited, the pacemaker will step in and control it. And if it actually stops, the defibrillator will fire and restart it, which apparently um, is a bit like being kicked by a donkey and you get the most disgusting taste of metal in your mouth for a couple of days. So I'm rather hoping neither of them will ever happen. And, you know, I've had it checked twice. No, I haven't. That's a lie. I've had it checked three times. It's all been working absolutely fine. Um, I've also had it disconnected once when I had an, an MRI scan. Um, and 
everything worked fine for an hour and a half. So, you know, touch wood, it's there purely as a precaution and will never be needed. But it is, um, it is nice to know it's there because one of the biggest challenges we have is I am what is classed as idiopathic, which means they aren't 100% certain as to what caused the cardiac arrest. When I had the MRI, there is some scar tissue on the heart, which may signify um, a heart attack, because it's not actually that unusual for a heart attack to trigger a cardiac arrest, but they can't say for certain. But the good thing is what they have been able to say is there are no um, irregular heart rhythms that are hereditary. Because once I came through all of this, one of my biggest concerns was, is this something that the, the three sons that Sharon and I have could also have inherited? And it looks extremely unlikely that they, they're going to have anything like this as well, which is quite a relief. Wonderful. So continue the story. So yeah. So yeah, I was I was in St Bartholomew's. Um, I was having breathing problems apparently, um, and on Friday the seventh of July. So we're now what two and a half weeks after. No, we're not. We're one and a half weeks after the original uh, cardiac arrest, arrest. I had a tracheostomy, so I have a nice little scar running around the the bottom of my throat. Um, which, uh, by all accounts, can yeah was was a, a great success because it actually reduced a lot of the distress I was having from the breathing mask that I was wearing. I was then transferred uh, from St Bartholomew's to the Royal Barks in Reading, which is where we actually live. So Sharon was able to move out of my brother's house um, and move back home on the 15th of July. I was in intensive care for a couple of days. Then... I say, before, before that, you were actually brought out of a coma, right? Though in, oh, in, I was. In well, this is the thing, Tanya. You were there. You I have was. a better idea of what was. happened than I do. Because <laughs> uh, the, the strangest thing was once I was brought out of the, the, the coma, um, I did regain consciousness and start holding conversations, uh, by all accounts, quite surreal conversations at times as well. And I have absolutely no memory of this at all. And one of the most interesting ones was when I went back up to uh, Bartholomew's for one of the appointments. Uh, we went up to the ward and I actually met Lindsay, who was the nurse who probably was the who looked after me more than any other nurse and has a very very distinct Scottish accent but when she spoke there was I had no recognition or memory of her accent at all which is quite interesting because it was a, a very distinctive accent so yeah I was conscious but no memory whatsoever. Um, one particular one, a couple of friends of mine came to see me, but this was when I was in the Royal Barks. Um, and by all accounts, they arrived and I asked them what their view was of dinosaurs' feet. <laughs> and, uh, well, first of all, I asked, I asked Phil initially, yeah, what is your view on dinosaurs' feet, Phil? And uh, 
when he was unable to answer, he batted the question across to Andy, who very quickly thought, ha, I'll get out of this one. He said, I don't really know, Matt. What do you think about them? And apparently the response was, well, they're attached to dinosaurs, so they're therefore not a good thing. <laughs> And I see next... your logic systems were still working. <laughs> Absolutely. And I then said, so what about weasels then? <laughs> and these were the type of conversations I was having. Um, but as I said, no memory whatsoever. Um, actually, this is something which I'd like to stop and focus on a bit, because I think it's, it's actually a, a phenomenon that happens very, very frequently. And it's very distressing for especially the relatives and friends of mm. a patient who has been in a similar episode or has come out of an artificial coma in the ICU, that there is a phenomenon known as ICU psychosis. And that's yeah. exactly what you had. Mm. There's no real understanding of where that comes from. I actually have a couple of personal theories, which are just exactly that. They're theories they've never been proved, that when you induce an artificial coma, um, sedation is not the same thing as sleep. Mm. And we all know that if you don't sleep and you don't dream sleep, you do actually enter a, a period of psychosis afterwards. And my theory is that that's, that's exactly what happens, that in fact you're, you're reducing somebody's ability to dream sleep and therefore they actually, the brain is scrambled. But in a way it's kind of a godsend because, you know, in your condition, it was, it was something that meant you don't have any recollection of that yeah. time where you were in probably in a lot of physical discomfort. Mm. Yeah, how, no, do you, I mean, how do you feel about that? You know, exactly the same. To be brutally frank with you, I mean, I, I am not a fan of hospitals. Uh, I, when I was eighteen, I visited hospital every single day to to see my grandfather when he, yeah, who was you know, dying of leukemia at the time and uh, including having to phone my father who was my grandfather was in Portsmouth my dad was stationed down in Plymouth at the time in the Navy and having to phone him up and say I don't care what you're doing tonight get in the car get up and see your, your father because you won't see him if you don't get up there I found that incredibly traumatic and I have since then done everything in my power to avoid hospitals so to be completely oblivious to being in hospital which is something I would find incredibly traumatic I think was a massive blessing for me but bizarrely when I did finally become aware of where I was it didn't strike me as odd that mm -hmm. I was in hospital so obviously something was registering um, again I think the, the problems weren't for me the problems were much more for Sharon Jamie Dan Rory family and friends in respect of you know they were told when I was in the coma that they had no idea whether I would have brain damage, um, you know, whether I could be completely brain dead or absolutely fine. Um, so I, I also apparently was uh, developed a bizarre twitch and I think my, my right leg and right arm were twitching a lot and my left arm and left leg weren't moving at all. So all of these type of things were incredibly traumatic for them, but for me, like I say, I knew nothing about it. Um, and apparently the, when I first gained consciousness in Bartholomew's and started talking, um, 
I told Jamie, my eldest son, that things were all a bit shit. And that was the point where they thought, he's going to be okay. (laughs) And when I told my brother-in-law to F off, um, he actually texted the whole family to let me know, Matt's coming back to us. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think, you know, it it does me a massive disservice. Um, But, you know, I think, you know, like, like I say, for me... I didn't actually experience a lot of this, so I think it was a lot better for, for my, from my from my perspective because I think it would be the easiest thing in the world to be, you know, seriously scarred by what you've been through because I, I could imagine that it was not a lot of fun. Mm. Mm. No, it wasn't. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, Matt, we we now have you back at back in the. You've been transferred into the royal barks, and uh, yep. you've come out of the uh, of the the ICU psychosis. Um, yeah. What, what problems were were you left encountering at that point? Um, the the biggest problems I, I suppose that I I had were the fact that in terms of my heart, everything was working reasonably normally um there was no sort of you know strange arrhythmias you know weird beats or anything everything had settled down my my magic box appeared to be doing everything that it should be doing um the problems i had were very much neurological um and i sharon got me a little whiteboard to write down on it on it what day it was what ward I was in because I could not remember I would ask the same question over and over again Um, and Sharon was in conversation with one of the physios who mentioned that there was a a neurological ward mainly for for stroke victims Um, but the physio felt it would be useful for me to be transferred <clears throat> to this neurological ward um you know sharon as well as i do she is a very determined lady she is. <laughs> and once she had this information she would not let it go and was you know on the back of the nursing staff every day is there a free bed can we get him transferred to there etc etc and on monday the 31st of all, of july i was transferred to caversham ward which was the is the neurological rehab uh, ward and i can never really put into words the gratitude I feel towards Sharon for the effort she put in for this because this was the thing that really made a, a huge difference. It was a total game changer wasn't it? Oh absolutely I mean I could not read my book as an example if I if I read a paragraph by the time I got to the end of the paragraph I had forgotten what happened at the start of the paragraph um like I said, I had to write down on the whiteboard what my name was, what day it was, etc. And suddenly, I'm I'm in a ward with with stroke victims. So you have, um, you know, psychologists in there. You you have physio in there. You you have occupational health in there, and suddenly, from going from a ward where you just lay there all day 
you got you I came into a ward where I would have four one hour rehab sessions every day. I mean including sometimes literally just sitting around having discussions. And the difference it made was absolutely phenomenal particularly working with the psychologists who were yeah the tests that they did yeah the memory tests work yeah helping me to develop memory techniques helping the brain to find different wirings to make up for what had happened the the three and a half weeks that i was there changed you know literally had such an impact on me and really proved that you didn't have to accept how things were you could well first of all something I learned which I never had until any of this happened was patience um because you have to you know, I, I also, I mean, I have nerve damage, which is gradually healing in my legs, which which has impacted on my mobility. So that's made a difference to, to my sort of quality of life. But the biggest thing was the, you know, the hypoxic brain injury and how that's impacted on me. And like I say, the support I got, not just there, but once I was discharged, um, I don't know if every, every borough has this, but Wokingham have um, a... You know, community neurological support unit who came round and helped me. And again, I cannot speak highly enough of the support I got from the National Health Service. And I find it quite interesting when I talk to other cardiac arrest survivors that they have not had any of this neurological support and they don't have yeah, the same kind of mindset that I have. Because, and I don't know whether that's because of it, because of me or what it is, but, you know, I read something quite early on, which, um, and it was nothing to do with anything to do with this. It was just something I read in an article. And it, it said, all of us have the choice of whether we want to be a victim or a victor. And it's just, and that has really stuck with me because... I'm not going to lie, I do have days when I get up, maybe feel a bit sorry for myself, but I won't let myself because, yeah, I think I've always been a bit of a stubborn sort and I've always not liked to be beaten by things and, you know, developing a sort of determination to try to, to tackle and address some of the the mental problems that I was facing, I think it was incredibly important in helping me through it. Yeah, I think this is a super, super important part of your story, actually, for anybody who's listening, because we've had a couple of episodes in the past. We've talked to um, a couple of people who have had brain injuries and recovered through exactly the same sort of mm. treatment and determination and mindset. Um, mm. We also spoke to um, um, Dr. Mike Merzenich, who is the father of neuroplasticity, who actually proved that 
if you engage the brain, it will rewire, but mm. it has to be done with intent and it has to, the brain has to know it matters. Yes. It means that mm. you've got to really want it. And however hard you, it, you know, the days are difficult to mm. time where the brain is rewiring, but if you keep at it and you have that determination, it can make the difference between a broken brain and one that starts to rewire mm. and heal. I mean, the extent of that recovery is different for every person but you can achieve so much and this is a, such an important message to get out there for people that they really should keep going and not mm. and not give up and i i love that about your story i think it's yeah. massive yeah because i it, it's it's funny it's just been it was little things i i i find conflict very difficult not I'm, I'm fine having conflict with somebody else. I can cope with that, no problem. But um, if Sharon and one of the boys, you know, having teenage sons, they, they're, they're, there's potential there for, for disagreement. <laughs> uh, but you know, the slightest disagreement, I would find it really, really distressful. Um, I would get really anxious and upset about it. And again, I, I came across a book called Rewire Your Anxious Brain, uh, and I cannot for the life of me remember the name of the lady who wrote it. And again, just reading that, it had some hints and tips on finding different ways to deal with things. Um, and uh, yeah, the mindset thing is, uh, I think, is the most important thing that you can you know you can let it beat you or you can have a crack at trying to beat it um of course there's the other aspect to mention that i faced of um i was prior to the um cardiac arrest so i was doing um, an mba and i was in my final year of my mba and uh, was finding every excuse in the world that were back then not to complete my dissertation. Um, I, I managed to get uh, the, the university to agree to mitigating circumstances to give me an extension, which I felt was, uh, was not unreasonable. I was quite astounded that uh, one of my colleagues on the course used me as mitigating circumstances so that he got an extension as well, which I was, at, I was almost outraged by. But uh, I managed to get a the extension of, um, well, they gave me 12 months almost in the end to, to complete it because obviously I should have submitted it while I was in a coma. And that, again, was an absolutely massive thing because sitting down and reading academic articles is dull at the best of times, to be honest. And when I... When I'd been out of hospital probably about a month, I, I set myself a target of trying to read one article a day. And to begin with, it was probably one word a day was about all I managed. But again, that was a, it was just belief that you could do it uh, and not being prepared to give up. And if you'll forgive me for blowing my own trumpet. You blow, you blow. <laughs> I, I did complete my dissertation. I did submit it and I got, got a distinction on my dissertation. Um, which enabled me to get a, a merit on my MBA, which uh, I was 
I was rather chuffed with, but I have to be honest. <laughs> and quite rightly so. We are so proud of you, Matt. You have no idea. And and again, a beacon of inspiration, I feel. But the, the, the thing there, Tanya, what I found was it showed that you can do it. You, you know, it was, I'm not going to lie to you, it was hell. It was months of abject misery. But... If you stick with something and you want it enough, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. I'm so, yeah. As I said, we're all so proud of you. I oh, think thank you. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. What do you think you've learned from this experience other than the mindset thing? I mean, that's a huge part of it, but mm. you know, expand on that. What, what, you know, a lot of people who go through these really, really traumatic life events, um, be it physical or emotional or whatever, something that turns your life upside down completely. Mm. Oftentimes you'll come back and you talk to these people a couple of years later and they'll say, you know what? Actually it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. Uh, what's your take on all of this now yeah um i think it's got things in priority a little bit (laughs) um if i look at work yeah i care about my job and I, i want to do the job to the best of my ability but uh there are times when I will be sitting in meetings or whatever, and I'm, I have to try very hard not to roll my eyes and go, you know, really? <laughs> <laughs> I just do it silently. Um, I, I, I think in, in terms of getting things in priority, understanding what really matters, um, understanding that you know you you only live once or in my case i think i'm on to number nine now but you know <laughs> i've always said i'm I'm a cat yeah <laughs> yes but you know it's it, it's about you know don't don't sit around waiting for things i suppose and again something else i read somewhere which was said you know all of us will will lie on our deathbed and think oh i wish i hadn't um but you know you can actually do something to make sure that when you are lying on your deathbed you don't think oh i wish i had mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. sometimes it's about you know have a go at things what's the worst that can happen yeah. you know and i think that the, the things like that are really important um another one for me has been to really appreciate the importance of the support network you have the you know the 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 family the friends are unbelievable and you think about you know what you put them through before before this you know there are times when maybe you hadn't been the easiest person to live with um Really? Or, I'm, I'm talking theoretically. Oh, absolutely. Of course, you know, I've heard this from other people. But you know, you, and you know, people are just the support, the the you know, the the love, whatever. It's difficult to put, to explain what it is, but it's just the the strength I have got from Sharon, from the boys, from the likes of yourself as well. Yeah, the 
um, you know, your, your very fine husband coming and talking to me and, it, and actually explaining things. You know, the doctor would go away and Klaus would then be able to say, this is what that meant. And that, you know, just little things like that made such a difference. But it, no, it's just the sort of the support network. You, you, you get to really, really appreciate it. Um, I've learned, as I mentioned, patience, because one of the challenges, of course, when you when you are recuperating from something, it takes a long time to make even the smallest bit of progress. So sometimes you feel, oh, I'm not getting anywhere. And then you see someone you haven't seen for three months and they comment on how you couldn't do something. And that's that's really nice. So it's learning to be patient and learning that, you know, if today you or yesterday you could walk to the end of the road, then maybe today you can walk three paces beyond the end of the road. And, that, and that's almost what it was like to begin with. I mean, uh, yesterday I went for a walk and I walked over five kilometres. So I don't know what it is in miles because I can't work out how to change the settings on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but just those little things, you know, if I go back, you know, six months, I'd never have been able to do that. So it's just constantly challenging yourself but learning patience that you're not going to be able to do everything every day if that makes sense absolutely absolutely i think support network i think is 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 huge Mm. huge. yeah because it's exactly what you said i mean essentially they they not only provide the love and the support but they do provide this role of being a mirror because i think when you're trapped in the situation yourselves Mm. you don't see things objectively and sometimes you do need that from the outside to be able to put Mm. things into perspective and say you know yeah you are getting better it's slow but it's happening yes Um, yeah Yeah. um but also i think that they can they can make you laugh i mean i had this this lovely thing with with dan the who's the the middle son uh when because of the nerve damage i couldn't move my right foot at all i had absolutely when i first came out of hospital um and i think it probably was about november or november december time 2017 where i got maybe about a millimetre or two movement in the toe. And uh, I said to Dan, Dan, look! And I showed him and he went, yeah, that's really good, Dan. I could do that when I was a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like kids to put things in perspective. But but it's just, you know, it it stopped me taking myself too seriously sometimes. You know, the ability to laugh at your situation, actually, I think is incredibly important. Right, absolutely. What you know, you've 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 gone through this horrendous experience and come out brilliantly at the other end. Um, we're all so happy and so delighted and so actually deeply impressed. I have to say by your tenacity and, and attitude. No, it's true because I think it's so easy to give up in mm. that situation. Um, I think people, a lot of people, would have given up a lot earlier, and you just didn't let that happen. And I think that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you today because I think that this is really inspirational for people. Um, the other thing that I think is really important is that you and your whole family have gone have decided to go and get CPR training Um, Mm. you speak a little bit about that because at the end of the day if that person on the train had not helped you you wouldn't be here yes let's let's talk about that let's have a a shout out for everybody to Mm. find things out and learn 
Absolutely. I think, you know, I am a, a huge advocate and uh, I, I have to be careful because I do, you know, when I'm on sort of social media, not to keep banging on about it because I worry that if I put too much about on there, go and get yourself trained, that people will stop listening. They'll become kind of immune to it. But I don't think you can overestimate the importance of it. The, um, last year, uh, 129 cardiac arrest survivors got together at um, a hospital in Basildon and set a new world record for the most survivors together. And one of the presentations actually had quite an epic quote, which was that CPR is like sex, that even bad CPR is better than no CPR, which I thought was quite an interesting way of putting it. But it's actually incredibly important. People worry that oh, I could do it wrong. You, as I said earlier, you can't do it wrong, even if you don't do it 100% right. If you are helping to get blood and oxygen into somebody's brain, you are helping them to survive until you can get a sort of a medical expert, if you like, turning up. So to go and learn CPR is, I think, incredibly important. Um, our, our government, who I am not the biggest fan of, um, but having said that, you know, what's the alternative? They're they're all idiots in my book. But anyway, I'll, I'll get <laughs> That's off a my whole different conversation. Yeah, yeah. Let's get, I'll get off the soapbox. But they are they have been making noises about making CPR training compulsory in secondary schools. I totally. Do it. That's Absolutely. all I can say. Um, anyone out there who's listening to to this, if you get a chance to learn CPR, do it. You can learn how to do CPR probably in forty minutes tops, just to do the CPR, and hopefully you will never need it. Mm-hmm. But, like I said, you know, as you as you rightly said, if it wasn't for this one person who went well I'll have a crack at it for all I know they did it wrong I don't I don't know um but if it, if they hadn't had a go we wouldn't be having this conversation um you know I wouldn't still be enjoying time with with my friends and my family and stuff like that so you know you cannot emphasize how important it is and I I was um in the states last year in, in in October, I went over and worked in America for two weeks. Um, and it's really interesting over there where they actually have a higher survival percentage. And uh, I was in some, some meetings and did quick straw polls in a couple of them and found that probably 50% of the people in the meetings knew how to do CPR. Whereas over here if I was in a room with maybe 20 other people, um, I would be astounded if more than two or three knew how to do CPR. And, you know, I appreciate that because of medical insurance, they have to sort of go through, they have different approaches to medicine and they have, there's a lot more emphasis on sort of first aid training and things over there. But it, it shows in the statistics. It's as simple as that. Um, so... Yeah, anyone who's listening, if you get a chance, do it. 
Well, one of the things I think that's a bit off-putting to somebody is that they watch too many movies and see yeah. that, you know, they, they always go for, they're either put off by, um, mm. or they see that, you know, you have to mouth-to-mouth resuscitate. That, yeah. that is actually, just to point that out, no longer part of the CPR procedure, yeah. actually massaging the heart. Yes. That's the big part. So mm. for anybody who's listening, please don't get put off by that because that's mm. not what it's about. You know, it's mm. it's learning how to massage the heart at the yeah. right the right strength and the right rate. And as Matt said, it mm. really doesn't take long to learn. And it's mm. it's the difference between potentially saving somebody's life. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, and also I've 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 heard people because if you do it properly, there's quite a chance that you will break somebody's ribs. Right. Um, but again, broken I would, ribs better than dead, yeah, right? Exactly. I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather be alive with broken ribs um, because I wouldn't have known about it anyway because I was unconscious for they would have healed. But but you know, so what? Um, one one hopes that. Uh, the recipient of the CPR is not childish enough to to go down the route of litigation. Uh, yeah. On this side of the Atlantic, we haven't gone. We're not. We're not. Not there yet. But yeah, don't worry about things like that. I, I can. I can assure you, I'd much rather you broke my ribs. Right. Right. I think this is this is such an inspiring story. I really hope that the the people listening kind of like take this pardon the pun or perhaps not to heart um, because you know I think you've got a couple of really really important messages there so if you if you did have a take home message for um, people who have gone through something similar or friends and family of somebody who's gone through something similar, what would that be? Henry Ford. Um, Henry Ford is famous for two quotes. One, which is not in the slightest bit relevant, but you can have any colour you like as long as it's black in relation to the Model T. But the other one, I think, is incredibly relevant here, which is if you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. Brilliant. And to me, I think that that that's what it's all about. You, you know, it is. A, I, I said it earlier. It's a bit of a cliche, but are you going to be a victim or are you going to be a victor? Yeah, it's it's the easiest thing in the world to feel sorry for yourself, and I I do. I can I can feel sorry for myself better than anybody. I can tell. I can assure you, but I don't let myself. And also, I have a network that won't let me, and that helps on the days when I am feeling sorry for myself. They will. Uh, Drag me out in no uncertain terms. Right. But sometimes you need that, I think. But yeah, it, it is, it's just, and, and not only that, you know, enjoy every day because you never know what could happen. Exactly. Brilliant. Mm. Matt, thanks so much. I always have three little questions that I ask all of my guests and I'd like to put those to you now. So London Heal is all about mind, body, spirit. You know, the, the three things are not disconnected. Um, and I like to capture that in the idea of, of health, happiness and serenity, serenity. So for you personally, what does the word health mean, especially after what you've been through? Being able to do what you want to do with the people you want to do it with. What a beautiful way of encapsulating that word. I love that. Thank you. And what about happiness? What does Matt do to get happy? And do you actually even think it's important? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
You've got centuries to lie there being miserable after <laughs> it's all finished. Well, no, you're not being miserable because you probably you don't you don't know. You didn't ask me what happens when you die, Tanya. I well, I I would be quite happy to ask that question. I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk about that, but uh... well, I don't actually know for certain. Um, what, what I think happiness is incredibly important. Um, it is also infectious. You know if. If everyone you you spend time with is miserable, then maybe you need to look in a mirror. Mm-hmm. Very very wise words. Yeah, absolutely. It's very easy to blame everybody else yeah. around you for everything. Yeah. But sometimes you've yeah. got to look inside. Yeah. yeah, I would like to point out though, in my case, it is everybody else. It's not me. <laughs> That's why we love you. Um, <laughs> And lastly, what about serenity? I, I always think this is a word that's hugely undervalued. We, we live mm. in a crazy world where everybody rushes around and there's just, you know, meeps and beeps and things and bings and, and everybody is surrounded by a huge level of noise. I don't even yeah. know auditory. It's like, you know, emotional noise yes. and, and sensory yeah. noise. What, if, what have you learned um, from all of this? How do you turn down the noise? Hmm. Do you have like a meditation practice or something that gives you time to just get to that stillness? I did to begin with. Um, I I did use. Um, have you come across the Headway app? Mm-hmm. I certainly when I first came out. Headspace of, actually. Isn't head, it? That's the one. Yeah, mm-hmm. Headspace. Yeah, head, Headway is the brain injuries. Uh, charity um but yeah headspace when i first came out of hospital and yeah but when my when i was trying to get my mind to heal itself um when i was trying to learn to deal with the anxiety particularly i found them i i did do some meditation um and did find it very very useful um i don't tend to these days um you should. <laughs> I know. Um, I just don't have time. <laughs> That's my excuse. I know. Don't look at me like take, that. Take, take <laughs> you out on that one, yeah. You don't have time not to. That's what I Yes, yes. I, have, I need to be very careful because you do know where I live. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Um, it's, I don't know. I, I suppose I have become very comfortable with my own company and I think that's kind of important I am I'm comfortable being me I have accepted that you know perfection is an aspiration and yeah I have faults it doesn't mean I shouldn't try and solve them but uh, I I do need to accept that I'm I'm not perfect and guess what so uh, that that applies to everybody else as well um so I think I managed to duck the meditation there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you off for now. <laughs> yeah, and, and no doubt at some point this afternoon I'll get a text message saying, have you meditated today? <laughs> Great. Anyway, so when you die, now I don't know, for, I'll be honest with you, I, I actually don't know. I have a very distinct memory. Um, but what I don't know is when, when this actually happens. Um, what 
I can remember is, first of all, it was like when Frodo puts the ring on in the Lord of the Rings film and the whole like edge of the screen goes fuzzy. Mm-hmm. So the, the edge of the screen went fuzzy. And I then got on an aeroplane. Um, and I got on an aeroplane in Malta and it flew from Malta to Australia. I don't know where I went in Australia to LA and back to Malta. Now the significance of Malta is that's where I was born. Right. Um, I had a ticket for the flights, but there was not a seat for me. Interesting. So yeah, who knows? Uh, I, again, someone else I know who who had a cardiac arrest has a, a distinct memory of walking into a tent, um, and she said it was like a sort of First World War hospital. There was sort of people, nurses, and they said to her, "There isn't a bed for you." Now, the, you know, these could be caused by the vast amounts of drugs they were pumping into us. Who knows? But yeah, that I have no, you know walk towards the light recollection or anything like that so i don't know whether or not that is what happens when you die because i didn't i came back great and we are more than delighted that happened matt thanks so much um my pleasure you know i you know i call you miracle matt um you are for me a miracle what's happened to you the way that you've approached this the way that you've tackled it is is amazing inspiring i wouldn't actually have expected anything less having known you all these years um, yeah and uh thanks for sharing because i think that what you've told us is is really informative and inspiring and maybe well, also on your behalf mm. i talk a lot here about you know um the mistakes that the medical profession make but i think we have to absolutely acknowledge the 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 work that they did in helping mm. you get back on track yes. so a huge shout out to mm. the Barts and even the people also at, at, at the Royal Barks mm-hmm. um, because sometimes you know modern medicine really really can make the difference between life yeah. and death. Absolutely yeah. yeah. So thanks so much. And My if pleasure. You, if you have a, a, a anything new to talk about in a in a couple of months time or whenever when you've learned the next thing or you start up some charity because i don't put it past you <laughs> we'll have you we will have you back so thanks again it's been an absolute pleasure speaking my pleasure you. i hope it, i hope it's of interest to people totally thanks my love take care so dear listeners I hope you enjoyed that episode with Matt as much as I did. I love him to death. He's such an adorable human being, really, and and an absolute inspiration, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have him on the show. Um, Take-home message is really, please, please, please go learn how to do CPR if you don't know, because it can really be the difference between life and death. And the second take-home message is, you know, mindset is so important and your brain does have incredible capacity to heal and it's difficult and you have to be tenacious and you need a good support network to help you. So fight for it. Don't give up. Listen to what people like Matt have to say because they are beacons of inspiration. They show you it can be done. So dear listeners, please, if you find this information useful, inspiring, 
pass it on to those people who could really, really do with knowing all of this stuff. Rate and review us on iTunes so that our podcast gets distributed to more people who need to listen to these messages. And go over to our Facebook page and like us, please, over there. And you will always find the most recent episode pinned to the top of the page with all the relevant links. If you would like to get extended show notes for upcoming episodes, then please go over to londonheal.com, sign up, become a London Heal Insider. And then with every new episode that's released, you'll get an email with all the relevant links to the episode and exclusive access to extended show notes so you don't have to listen to future episodes with a pen and paper if you're old school like me. So my dear listeners, that leaves me as always to wish you health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>